in Point Grey. On your frequency, we have some features from the Vancouver Short Film Festival. Okay, that voice is really hard to do. I don't know how he managed it. <laughs> That's really good. And, uh, this is the Arts Report with Jake Clark. As I mentioned, we're broadcasting to you live from the unceded Musqueam territory of UBC's Point Grey campus. And I am joined here today by Curtis Lamb. Oh, sorry. And, oh, Lawrence Lamb. Lawrence, Lawrence Lamb. Sorry, I missed that. Okay. Introduce yourself. Sorry. Lawrence Lamb. And I'm Jerome Yu, uh, who are a members of the Vancouver Inter- uh, Short Film Festival, which is currently well, not not currently active. It's on briefly, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's starting this coming Friday. Uh, the Vancouver Short Film Festival starts this Friday and goes until Saturday night. Uh, yeah, our film will. Our film has the pleasure of closing out the night. Um, yeah, good times. Yeah. And, oh, it looks like uh, someone's calling in. Just a second. Let's see if we can get uh, Mary Galloway. Yes. Great, the other, another artist on the phone, online. Hello? You're on the air. Hello? Hello? Is this someone? Wait. It's embarrassing when this happens in real time, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I, oh. Hello? Hello? Hello again? No? Am I just talking into the ear? Yeah, I'm talking into the ether again. <laughs> I... I, I am very sorry for this uh, happening. You know, Mary. Hello. Hi. Oh, I can hear. I can yes. hear. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, so, uh, sorry about that. There. You know that. Uh, there's an explanation. Uh, I'm a moron. Uh, hi. Hello. <laughs> uh, n- nice to meet you. Glad you could join us. And um, for having me. Hey, it's a pleasure. And. Um, so both of you guys, Mary, Mary uh, Lawrence, and well, Jerome, you've acted in uh, Cypher, which mm-hmm. is Lawrence's film. And Mary, you also brought us a short uh, called The Unintentional Mother. And uh, could you guys just pitch us your shorts? Uh, okay, that sounds weird. For <laughs> Give us some money. <laughs> Mary, Mary can go first. Mary can go first. Oh, well, okay then. Um, so Unintentional Mother is a dramatic short set in the 1970s. And it's about a nanny and a little boy and the um, parallels in the cycles of abuse that they're both experiencing and the strength that their bond has um, within that. So it's not a comedy. Yeah, it's not quite a comedy, I'd say. <laughs> no, I, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty heavy. I've seen it. Kudos. And uh, Lawrence? Cy- yeah, Cypher is a 90s underground hip-hop drama uh, set in uh, post-riot L.A. Uh, in, in the 90s um, when there was a lot of conflict between the uh, Korean and black communities. Uh, and it's uh, sort of, yeah, it takes place in the underground hip-hop scene and it follows Jay, a uh, uh, Korean high school student who's uh, 
trying to get in, in on the scene. And um, though both of these films are interesting, like I, I was, it was interesting watching these because I kind of saw a similarity in theme. These are both sort of these outsider stories. If we can just jump jump into that, and they're both related to these sort of cycles that are becoming that. Well, they're not becoming relevant. They've always been relevant, but they're sort of heavy in the discourse now. There's inequality in Cipher, and there's abuse in the unintentional mother. And I was wondering if uh, you guys would like to unpack those a little bit. Uh, Mary, you want to go ahead? Yeah, sure. Um, Well, I think that for me, when I write um, and now direct stories, I want to use that opportunity to sort of shine a light on a topic that I think should be brought up and talked about and not so hush-hush and stuff like that. So... And um, in mine in particular, it shows like that abuse and that kind of thing happens in all walks of life. You know, it's not just the um, like the people that are in lower class or like it's both. So that's sort of Mm. the approach I took with it. With the character Anne, I noticed that uh, I I heard that her father, who is Anne, Anne is uh, native, and and her father. Uh, according to an, an interview, is supposed to be a residential school survivor. And do you think mm-hmm. that shadow sort of hangs long over this cyclical abuse, especially at that point in history? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still, like, very prevalent in the communities um, on the reserve in particular because there's, um, you know, the 60s scoop where the government came in and just scooped up all the children out of the um, indigenous communities and stuck them in these residential schools, um, which are were like Catholic-run schools where they were trying to uh, assimilate the children um, to be able to become part of like the white society back in those days. And the latest residential school closed in 1996, so like it's still very, um, yeah, very relevant and still affecting generations, and it'll affect generations for many to come because then those kids at the residential schools were um, sexually assaulted physically, mentally, like emotionally. They were um, not allowed to speak their own language. They were um, they were taken away from their families and raised without much love in their life. So um, then they grew up and started having families, and then they don't know how to raise their children because they weren't raised by family. They were raised by uh, residential schools. So, um, so yeah, in an earlier draft of the script, that was a little more obvious that he was a residential school survivor, but um, time restraints and stuff. So we ended up not focusing on that. But in, in the feature film version, <laughs> we dive Ooh. into that a little deeper. So, yeah, we'll see if one day that ever comes to fruition. That's uh, you already planning the, the big picture version there? I do have a feature film uh, script written for it. It's not quite ready yet, though. I want to make it stronger before I start looking around for funding for that one or, um, yeah, shopping it around. But I do have a dream to make it a feature film one day. <laughs> Isn't ain't that the truth, right? And um, yeah, uh, Lawrence, like that with um, this, the, the, it was interesting to me how Cipher approached this because. I don't know a lot about hip hop, but I, I know what I like. And like uh, contemporaneous to Cipher, there were these groups. Like there was, uh, like I guess there was Snacky Chan, and there were guys like the Mountain Brothers. And then later on, there was um, 
Jin with the rap battles, and those are some Asian voices in hip hop. But otherwise, it's pretty, pretty dry, and it's a pretty. It, the genre has had a, an interesting history with, mm. especially with um, Asian culture. Like there's, well, I mean, that's hasn't really changed with Hobson, you know. But it's growing, and you know, it's it's kind of uh, emerging more now, especially with. Uh, I feel like that, like now, there's sort of a new wave with. Mm-hmm. Um, you see a lot of, uh, I guess it was like Keith Keith Ape and Dumbfounded, and that's right. Yeah. Um, just but like, a lot of uh, Asian rappers coming in uh, over overseas to to North America. Um, but to to also answer your your earlier question about um, sort of like uh, you know more more so than inequality, I think it's it, the sort of uh, what you're like sort of uh, systematic prejudice, perhaps. It, I, I think it was more about the the conflict between these two groups, sort of two minority groups that we found interesting. And uh, it's actually Jerome uh, who uh, we we co-wrote this. Uh, Jerome, myself, and Nash Tatsumeda, our producer, who isn't with uh, with us today. Um, you know, I think it was Jerome who actually came across the story of uh, uh, Tiger JK. If you want to talk about that, yeah, uh, Tiger JK is one of the biggest influences. Uh, of hip hop in uh, South Korea, uh, and he grew uh, up in LA. He grew up in LA actually, but he moved over to Korea and is pretty much what the equivalent of what Tupac would be to America there. And um, he's definitely influenced the hip hop culture over in South Korea, and that's grown majorly, especially over the last decade. And um, the story of Tiger JK kind of goes like this: uh, We've never been able to actually get in touch with them, unfortunately, but um, kind of based on uh, some of what we found on the internet and some of like the stories we found is that he grew up in LA at a time where, you know, there was a lot of tension between the Koreans and the African-Americans in downtown LA. And um, yeah, he kind of wanted to use rap, which was at the time sort of what uh, black culture was about and sort of use that to reach out and communicate and sort of bridge, uh, bridge the two communities together. And we found that idea really interesting and so we sort of base cypher off of his story yeah inspired by that that sort of yeah it's yeah because there's a definite underground thing a definitely very proactive personal mood going on in that which especially in uh like post odd future post brock hampton mm-hmm. like those have been really used to put some very strange voices into the discourse of, of hip-hop and then of music and culture in general and what was interesting to me is that when i looked up uh, your first, your student film, uh, which is Blue Dart, Blue Jet? Blue Jet, yeah. Blue Jet, uh, which is about a rock and roll DJ in Hong Kong in the 70s. Oh, which is too close. T- uh, Taiwan. 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 I'm very, very sorry. Oh, okay. He, he, grew up in, he grew up in Hong Kong, so, yeah. Easy to mix up. Yeah, it's easy to mix up. So. <laughs> uh, fairly different places. I, yeah. But, um, and that is also very much... Um, about uh, this zeitgeist, this musical zeitgeist at the height of a point when it spoke across a lot of boundaries. Mm. And is that a topic that has personal relevance to you? How do you see music and how do you see culture based on that? I, I think that's a, yeah, it, totally. I, I Those those themes are interesting because, um, you know, I think for me, Cypher and also my, my student film, Blue Jet, are, are interesting because they are sort of intersections of different cultures. Um, Blue Jet is sort of, you know, it's it's in Taiwan, but it's also uh, sort of a love for American rock and roll and British rock and roll. And, uh, you know, in, in Cypher, it's, um, it's hip hop, but it's also sort of, the, you know, these different uh, minority groups sort of... Uh, 
And, and, and so, like, you know, music, um, you know, one of the, the things that we, um, you know, we believe is that, you know, music is a harmonizer and it, it kind of brings people together. And that's something that we kind of wanted to explore a little bit in, in our short film. Um, and um, but that, yeah, that's exactly why, like myself, I, I love these sort of um, I love that it. Something like are we still? Is it? No, we're still going. Okay, we're cool. still going. Okay. The board, the board just goes dark sometimes. Okay, okay. cool. Uh, yeah, it's like looking at um, looking looking at music in, in, as a as a as a part of culture that in in most cultures too. Or sorry, it, it's like this beautiful part of culture that that brings different groups together. And it's like something that can be universally loved. Um, and uh, I think yeah, I think it's just. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. I guess a question for both of you guys, is there any sort of specific album or instance that really spoke to you in that regard? I feel like we explored, like, so many, you know? A particular album, like... Like, for like, you guys personally. For me, honestly, like, growing up, I listened to a lot of, like, um, Biggie, Face Moss, you know? Like, Juicy was huge for me. Like, I know, like, I, I was, like, born in the middle mid-90s, so then, like, that was, like, kind of, like, right after, but... Rather than like all the two thousand stuff, like that's kind of what I jammed to, you know. Yeah, I, I I mean I listened to a lot of um I listened to a lot of rap in the two thousand, so it was a lot of a lot of party jams, a lot of a lot of Ludacris and Nelly, um, Dirty Southern. Yeah, stuff, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but nothing. I don't have a I don't have a particular record, unfortunately. Because that's that's because I I I like to hear you know that's one thing I really did like about Cipher though was that it showed this very specific moment this very specific inspiration to this character and I thought that was excellently embodied across the board and that was it, it's, it's inspiring man it really is thank you especially because you know there's the, the badass radio DJ yeah um, played by he's got like he he'd be an excellent Bootsy Collins cosplayer I'll say that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, his voice is beautiful. James Arbelis. Yeah. Shout out to James. Yeah, I was I was trying to do an impression of him earlier on, but it ended up just being a bad Tom Waits impression. <laughs> that's what happens whenever I do an impression. Yeah, I, I that that happens. It's a pretty good Tom Waits impression, though. Oh yeah, yeah, it's a, that I practice that one a lot, which is kind of funny because I'm doing an impression of a guy doing an impression of Howlin' Wolf, <laughs> which is in and of itself kind of interesting. Yeah. Now, um, both of you guys um, uh, did these very immersive programs these film programs mm-hmm. and are now like it's a very immersive career like you hit the ground running and you do a lot of work like these are some long days and sleepless nights i i kind of gotta ask is there something outside of uh, of the industry that that inspires you that keeps you grounded or that that just helps you decompress um mary you want to yeah uh, sure i could pick this one up um i recently discovered my love for like playing the ukulele so that's sort of another outlet for me for like you know if i want to take a break from all things film for a couple hours i just go like write a song on the ukulele and i'm not saying i'm good at it because i think i'm probably pretty horrible but it's a great little outlet for me and um and i'm in la a lot so then i also just go for a little hike somewhere with my dog and you know take a step back because it is a lot i'm doing like writing directing and acting and the film industry in general is crazy and having sort of a uh like a thing a 
plate spinning in the air for all three of those things gets to be a lot. So it's, I think it's important to have something else to turn to and have a break from it all. <laughs> she's she's also tour- Mary's also touring with uh, Never Steady Never Still, which is doing pretty well in the festivals. I, I yeah, yeah, that one actually I I missed that one recently, but that's really one good. that was on my list to see because the second I heard about that. I'm like, that is mm. like incredibly like just the word that came to mind was relevant. Like that seems like something that mm. does need to be heard. And I don't I don't think that a lot about a lot of projects. And actually, that. Yeah, kind of, yeah I know. I, Kathleen is amazing. The Kathleen Hepburn. Shut up. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's Kathleen Hepburn. Yeah. For a second, I thought it was Catherine Hepburn. I thought, well, she's she's doing pretty well for her age. <laughs> <laughs> OK, that's that was a cheap joke. And you probably heard it about, what, 50 times? Yeah. I, no, I actually haven't. You're the first. Really? Wow. How can yeah. I feel good about that? I'm the first guy to crack that particular dad joke. But that was that was also <laughs> interesting because I've heard that associated with the kind of confrontational, sort of this emotional confrontation that it, it struck me the unintentional mother was definitely trying to convey. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. There are definitely two, um, yeah, two very similar, I'd say, emotionally or tonally. Um, pieces and for Never Steady, Never Still, I got to just act. I didn't have to think about anything else. <laughs> that was nice. <laughs> it's a relief. Yeah. Yeah, and it's been nominated for eight um, Canadian uh, screen awards. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So I, yeah, fingers crossed for them. Yeah, fingers crossed. The whole team. Yeah. And what, what about? What about you guys? Sorry. What about you guys? Do you guys? Uh, for me, I, I love uh, the Moth podcast, which is like true uh, st- stories told live. And uh, yeah, I just, I mean, I really enjoy uh, just st- uh, going for walks and just plugging in and just having a story bleed into my ears. You got a thing for radio, eh? Yeah, just, I, I, I like I like podcasts. Mm-hmm. I like, um, I think there's just something romantic about um, that voice, you know, that disembodied voice that just is able to reach out, uh, you know, reach out across the nation and, you know, everyone sort of just sync with this person. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I think it's, it's a really cool. Why, thank you. <laughs> I very much appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> is, is it still about decompressing? Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Decompressing. Yeah. I, I guess something that just because, like, I, I, I know the feeling when you're just in inside something every day. That's an yeah, word weird sure. choice. And then you kind of just got to take yourself out of it just to to see it straight. Right. I feel like that's hard because, like, I would like think like my go-to is like meeting friends, but it's become like to a point where all my friends are part of the industry. <laughs> But um yeah, yeah, besides that, like I actually um, last man's holiday, yeah, sort of, yeah. yeah. But uh besides that, like I have a couple of reptiles that I have back home at my parents, and I sort of uh like to take care of them with my brother, do some breeding projects, and yeah, yeah. I know it sounds kind of, what kind of reptiles. That yeah. is an interesting hobby. Yeah. Like that's like on list of hobbies. That's like oh, breed reptiles. Yeah, Did breed, not think of that yeah, one. Yeah, no, sorry. <laughs> no. It's what? interesting, I swear. Don't be sorry. I promise I'm not weird. <laughs> You're not weird. No, it's, it's like, it's like play the ukulele, listen to podcasts, breed reptiles. I'm like, hmm, one of these things is not like the <laughs> <laughs> what, kind of, what kind of reptiles are these? Ball pythons. Yeah. Oh, cool. Some cool looking mm. snakes. So breed horror movie reptiles. Yeah. <laughs> that's just, that's just adding on to it, man. That's, that's, that's quite something. 
Now, um, I, I guess this is the obligatory question, but I kind of gotta gotta throw it out there. I mean, Mary, I've heard in interviews that you said you like to do a comedy someday, and I just kind of mm-hmm. gotta ask if you guys have to do a next project, like a feature length project, what would you want it to be? Um, I mean, there's a couple, couple, there's a couple things, but uh, one of them is we would love to somehow get connected with Tiger JK, and um, because I think his you know initially with the inspiration of the story and sort of uh, uh making hip hop making i think he made an album or it, he made music it's not it's not very clear but the the wikipedia wasn't very clear but like i th- i get the impression he made an album as a way to bring these two communities together and we want to like i'd love to hear that story and just uh maybe bring that to to the screen one potentially if Tiger yeah, JK yeah. won. Yeah, I mean <laughs> we just wanna we we like we tried to reach out to Tiger JK and send him Instagram DMs and well, I, we emailed him, tweeted him. <laughs> His art got to reach. Yeah, I mean we just yeah. Um it's like the next logical step is just Vine. Like just we're running out of apps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We all, right. oh, the only ones we have left like are Vine and thing. Tinder. This is gonna get weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I would like to see Lauren set up a Tinder account just to try to <laughs> <laughs> just like just like catfish a guy for the story of his yeah. life. Like, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, so, like turd odds making films about powerful stories. Yeah. Like, okay, fair enough. I've never used Tinder, so I don't know the exact. Format. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm just assuming it's a dating app in real time. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't used Tinder either. I haven't used. Yeah. <laughs> 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 say that. Just say that with a smile. <laughs> We're we're all uneducated on on this topic. Maybe that's not the best way, Lauren. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see it's a great go. idea. And and what about you, Mary? What would what would say that comedy look like? If, oh, oh, hmm. Well, if because I read in an interview uh, about it that mm-hmm. you said you were sort of raised on these rom coms and that you sort of grew to identify and kind of uh rebel against these con- the conventions they mm-hmm. set forth and that's that's very mm-hmm. interesting to me because one of our previous guests Jason James made a film that was sort of an anti-rom-com and it's a very interesting I I, I think anyway because I really like comedies it's definitely an interesting set of jokes you can pull out and uh, yeah. full product like what would that look like in 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 your hands Oh I don't know I mean I'm really digging these days I don't know if the show's filming anymore or anything, but New Girl I find hilarious. Yeah. I like that kind of humor. <laughs> I'd like to do something like that maybe. Um, but I don't know. I feel like that would be more of me just um, acting. I don't know if I could write or direct a comedy at this point. Never say never. Yeah. No, not never, but just not now, I'd say. <laughs> Go, eh, fair enough. That's the, the, the that's the follow up song to the Justin Bieber song, which is a little <laughs> underwhelming. Never say never, yeah. but do say not now. I was like, it's a long title. Yeah, oh. that's a long one. Featuring Drake. You could copyright that. <laughs> hey, now, um, both of you guys are. I well, actually, you've well, you've made these films at least, and some of your projects in Vancouver, and. I know, Mary, you've, you've credited sort of the Vancouver scene with sort of broadening that horizon. And, Curtis, you recently graduated Emily Carr. And – damn it! <laughs> God! God! My All shoddy good. memories. All good. All good. Good lord. All right. This, this, is, this is going <sighs> – It's all good. This is going south faster than Arizona Fugitive. It's all it's, good. <laughs> uh, but, so, but um, I – 
what is there a part of the Vancouver scene that you find particularly inspiring? Like, what are, what are the pros and cons of making film in this town? Uh, I mean, like with this particular film, we de- we had the support of the the Crazy Eights, which is a uh, incredible yeah um y- you have yeah so you have like this sort of community um where i guess it's like the cellular social club and the crazy eights uh crazy eights folks and the uh, hot shot shorts folks and, and anyways like this like paul armstrong and um you know stephanie halber and julie burns and uh, i mean these are the crazy eights folks and, and like matt gilroy and ingo Lou and um, I'm probably missing somebody. I'm sorry if I do, but anyway, so these, like, so these, there's this, um, there's this community out here, um, and you know they they hold the Cellulose Social Club, which is kind of like a monthly meetup, and then there's also Rain Dance, uh, with Nadia and um, uh, yeah, Rain, the Rain Dance folks. They they have like these booze and schmoozes. So there's a lot of um, you know it's, the, the community kind of feels feels alive, <laughs> but like the Crazy Eights in particular, like was a great. Um, you know, they're like Vancouver's largest and oldest uh, film competition. And, you know, you know, uh, a lot of people, a lot of filmmakers in town take take part. And, you know, they the, of the it, it's crazy. It's but they pick six teams and all those six teams. They get um, I think it's like forty, fifty thousand dollars with in kind support, um, something like that. Uh, they help you make your film. And so we're like we're super grateful of those guys. Um but I mean, to have an opportunity like that is is incredible. Uh, I, mean, I talk to some some filmmakers from the states, and sometimes I mean, uh, yeah, so I talk to some filmmakers from the states, and they're saying how like you know in Canada, they're, they're this sort of like this feels like there's a lot of support. Um, no, she's talking more about like the the uh, grants from the different uh, media, uh, the sort of um, like telefilm and uh, yeah, all the different organizations, but. It feels like there's there's, there's a story we have, we have Story Hive we have yeah um, a lot of hotshot shorts yeah hotshot shorts um, but there's a lot of a lot of opportunities here for sort of up and coming filmmakers a lot of uh, competitions and yeah so I, f- I feel like very supported and very grateful to be among this community awesome man and Mary yeah I think that uh, Vancouver has a really great indie film scene that I was really enjoying like I. I'm sort of splitting my time between Canada and America right now, but um, I think I'll always try to bring my work back to Vancouver because it is such a strong community of filmmakers there, and um, and everyone's willing to like just jump in and help out wherever they can. It seems like, and I am always game to jump into someone else's thing if they if they could see use for me. So I think that. Yeah, Vancouver's pretty well established in that scene, and I don't see it like really any cons. But um, just we need to bring more of the uh, big, like uh, big budget stuff. Like they're doing good right now, but I hope it just doesn't uh, crash again because it was really mm-hmm. slow in 2008, 2010. 12 i think it was really dead in vancouver but now it's doing well well it's a symbiotic system with the americans a lot right with um because the the mm-hmm. money usually comes from south of the border yeah well such yeah. as su- such as the industry eh? mm-hmm. all right mm-hmm. and honest it was awesome having you guys on the show so pro or con tell us what you got going on that was my attempt to do a rhyming outro it did not work very well <laughs> 
<laughs> Where can we can catch these at VSFF? When's that going on? Yeah, uh, Vancouver Short Film Festival starting this Friday. I just got to say, Vancouver Short Film Festival, they are an awesome film festival run by some boss ladies. Uh, got to give a shout out to uh, the festival co-directors, uh, Latina Pachiva, I hope I said that right, and Marina Dix. And also there's uh, the uh, ch- uh, chair, chair, director of the chair, uh, Kristen Stilling, who I sometimes accidentally call Kristen Stewart, but that is totally not the right name. <laughs> Anyways, um, this Friday... All awesome lady. <laughs> Chris, this this Friday, uh, going up to Sunday, uh, going up to Saturday. Um, uh, when's your short playing, Mary? Mine's Saturday. Saturday, yeah, we're playing on Sunday. Uh, sorry, Saturday night at seven o'clock. The last show. Oh, okay, I think we're at two. Awesome. Oh, also, can I say one more thing? Because uh, the also uh, the Vancouver Short Film Festival, they also are great at uh, supporting filmmakers. They give up to like. Ten thousand dollars in awards. Oh, nice! Um, so, they're pretty killer there. Good stuff. Yeah. So that's 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 yeah. a that's a good Saturday right there. Go down, take in the matinee, mm-hmm. go go get a bomb me or something, then go back for the evening. Bomb me. I think they're starting on. They're starting like right. One of those in a while. Yeah, he's a good bomb me. They're good. Um, I think they're starting. What's it starting on Saturday? It's like twelve or something or mm-hmm. one o'clock. It's starting in the afternoon. Also, there's like. Uh, there's a World War Two short. Uh, sorry, World, World War One musical by Hot Shot Shorts winner Michelle Key. Key, Key, Key. Oh. Uh, which is playing. I'm sorry for not remembering. It's sometime in the afternoon. It's like two, maybe. I'm gonna guess two. Could be two. Oh, maybe it's in on. Wait, on what day? Or maybe four. One of those days. <laughs> yeah. We have the internet. It's on Saturday though. I think it's on Saturday. I'm pretty sure it's on Saturday. Oh, maybe uh, it's in the same block as mine, then. I think mine's at 2, too. Okay, so it's at 2 o'clock, yeah. then. Okay. I'm looking forward to seeing yeah. that one. As, yeah. Nice. I'm looking forward to seeing all of them. I'm, and I'm, on a, I'm looking forward to seeing you. I'm looking forward to seeing these, and I'm looking forward to seeing you guys keep on keeping on, because mm-hmm. I really dug both of these. Keep on keeping up. Thank yeah. you. Appreciate yeah. that. As, well, it's, you know, I, I really like seeing this content. Both these are really inspiring. Both of these are really different things going on these very interesting themes and i just i appreciate that one kudos to you guys all right so that was our interview for vsff and we're going to take a short uh commercial break but after that we will be uh back on with an interview regarding the push festival feature king arthur's night which you're you're gonna want to hear it (laughs) and and uh BR, be right back. I, I, I can't say BRB. It's just, it's, I'm just not an acronym person. <laughs> Discorder Magazine has been supporting local music for over 30 years. Thanks to the long term support of the Rickshaw Theater, Discorder lives. Favorite bands are playing at the Rickshaw Theater. Check out their calendar just behind the cover of Discorder Magazine or at rickshawtheater.com. I think the news midweek, when the midweek news broke that Teo Dezo yeah. wasn't going to be playing in this game growing sport and to do it on a university campus with an educational message behind it. Uh, they'll be facing off against uh, all the big teams from uh, the, all the other conferences and the nationals. 
Want to be a CITR sports broadcaster? Looking for a cool way to get involved in UBC sports? Then email sports101 at citr.ca or come by our station in the nest to find out more. See you soon. So that was our interview. With, that was our VSFF interview uh, with a somewhat interesting uh, interview attempt. Really interesting interview attempt. Anyway, here's another interview done by a much more competent person, our lovely Christine Kim, regarding the Push Festival feature, King Arthur's Night, which just is has to be heard to be believed. Take a listen. The story of this kingdom is made almost entirely from his words, the king's words. This is a lot to see, my girl, he said, fight over. Hey there, Arts Report listeners. It's Christine. I had the pleasure of interviewing nationally renowned Canadian playwright Marcus Youssef on his latest collaboration with Niall McNeil on King Arthur's Night. It will be premiering in Vancouver as part of the 2018 Push Festival which I hope you are all as excited as I am to check out this year. If you're not, perhaps you will be by the end of listening to this interview. Yusuf and I started off the conversation by talking about what exactly King Arthur's Night is all about. It's okay to be upset. Yes. You don't need to be upset. Yes. Because I'm here for you. It's an adaptation of the King Arthur story um, from my co-writer and very dear friend and colleague Niall's point of view. And Niall, among many other things, his life includes Down syndrome. And so it's a very particular kind of perspective on, um, on the story, one that includes all sorts of elements of the story that, you, that people are familiar with, and then new, a different kind of elements that come from kind of Niall's imagination. More kind of physically, it's a really epic show um, with mm. 10 actors on stage, a band, a choir of 16 to 20 people, depending on the, the city we're in and tons of special effects and at least kind of indie theater special effects anyway um and so it's a yeah it's a really large scale show with terrific music by beta Haley as well yeah it's quite the ambitious uh theatrical performance that you're describing was this project at the outset quite grand in design when you're working on it with um with, uh, yes i think that's yeah i think i think uh, uh i think it, it's always been we've always imagined it as something fairly yeah large in scale now tends to think in fairly large scale <laughs> Europe at the place of the Caravan Farm Theater, which makes big shows that include horses and all sorts of stuff. So he has a, he has a pretty, like, yeah, pretty uh, epic kind of aesthetic. Um, and the first show we made together, which is a Peter Pan adaptation called Peter Panties, was also quite large in scale. I uh, had a band as well and, uh, you know, a whole bunch of pile of people on stage. Not quite as many as this one, but still quite a few. Um, so, yeah, I think we've been aware. And it's also, you know, the Arthur story, the Arthurian myth is is epic in its kind of influence and also its kind of place it takes in our, our at least kind of Western Anglo imagination. So, mm-hmm. so it makes sense. It's always made sense to us that it'd be kind of big. Right, right. We think of King Arthur as this huge figure in both like English literature as well as Hollywood films. Yeah, um, totally. Was the decision to, I guess, make Niall, who's also a writer of this piece, but King Arthur himself in the the play, um, what kind of messages or or reasoning, I guess, behind having him be the main character, be King Arthur, and be up on that stage um, yeah. personifying this person? 
Yeah, so I th- well, I think p- partly it's because Niall is, you know, like one of the creators of this piece, and in fact, is kind of the primary creator of this piece, and he's always imagined himself as King Arthur, so it's mm. as simple as that. Like, he, from the very beginning, he thought of himself as King Arthur. When we made Peter Pan Tease, which is the Peter Pan adaptation, he did not think of himself as Peter Pan, um, and so he did not play Peter Pan, a, a, a professional actor played Peter Pan. Uh, but in this case, uh, Niall's always... Uh, thought of himself as King Arthur. Mm. He identifies really ha- uh, really heavily with Arthur's power and the idea of being powerful. Um, and so that's always been it, been been it uh, been the way. And also just to kind of like like I I wouldn't I wouldn't characterize what that Niall and other, our other actors live with Down syndrome. I wouldn't characterize it as suffering necessarily. Mm. Like that that it's um, it's it's a challenge in many ways, sure. But it's also this extraordinary um, different kind of perspective that uh, many of us don't, you know, uh, we live in a culture that has historically separated people uh, who's, uh, who are neurodiverse in various ways. And so we've actually, in our own lives, lost the access to the kind of perspectives that they have and the kind of things that they're really good at that we aren't necessarily. And that's really one of the exciting things about this project is that collaboration uh, across kind of our perceptions of what are fundamental differences, but in fact, aren't necessarily all the time, I would argue. Hmm. I'm glad that you um, elaborated on that, and and I think that kind of voice hasn't really been heard in, in theater no. especially at all. Um, no. and now, this, this King Arthur's Night is going to be uh, premiering or debuting in Vancouver, but it actually premiered in Toronto last summer That's in right. June. Yep. Um, so yep. I, I'm wondering what kind of responses were there to this particular aspect of, of Down syndrome actors being up on stage and such an integral part of both the production and the presentation? Yeah, I think that what, uh, what, what people have really responded to is, A, like the show is not about disability. Like, mm. it's a King Arthur adaptation. And, I mean, it has elements that are really kind of weird and, like, like not what you'd expect. But but it's not fundamentally, like, a, um, uh, a piece about people who have disabilities. In fact, what it is is an integrated cast of people who are professionals and people who, who we call our community performers who, who we met through the Down Center Research Foundation. And I think that, that, that a lot of what people respond to in the show is that, is that the way in which, again everybody in the show is doing stuff that they're really, really good at, and that's really clear, and it's completely integrated. And so our Lancelot is a neurotypical professional actor. Our Guinevere is neurodiverse, and there's no, there's no discussion of that. It's not treated as a, as a big deal or right. thing. So I think that's one of the things people really respond to. Um, I think people also really respond to the fact that it's actually like kind of a really exciting show. Like it's a perspective we don't normally see. At the same time, it's like it's got this amazing music. It's quite dramatic. It's quite exciting. And the performances, both by our professional actors and by our community actors, are extraordinary. Like there are things that our community actors do, like their capacity. People with Down syndrome have a real capacity for presence. Like they're really good at being present and in the moment. Mm. And that's something professional actors spend their lives trying to learn how to be good at. And it's really cool to see those guys doing their thing and our pros together, like, negotiating that space. It's really exciting. Right, right. When you were at the onset of the project or envisioning it with Neil... um, Niall, yeah. Niall, sorry. (laughs) Niall. Did you have any concerns or reservations about um, the way that this 
project would be accepted in terms of the theater community so in terms of your public audience that you were looking in terms to reach of the public out audience? to yeah yeah and so, any surprises uh, along the way where you were like hmm i didn't think that people would react this way uh well if this is the second show we made together so the first one again as i said peter panties premiered at the push festival in 2011 uh, I mean, that one, I was like, oh, my God, I have no idea. I didn't even know how Nile and I would figure out how to write together. Mm-hmm. Nile doesn't actually physically write. So we had to devise a way that's mostly through me recording stuff and transcribing everything that we talk about and every, all the improvising we do and, and all the kind of different techniques we use and then organizing that material into drafts of scripts. Uh, so I didn't even know that. So there was very little that we knew. One of the really exciting things that happened audience-wise with um, Peter Panty's in terms of audience reaction, and it's carried over very much with King Arthur, is the intense um, appreciation and gratitude of the Down Syndrome community who understand some of the maybe stranger-seeming things in, in, in the production and in the script really clearly because their um, behaviors or ideas or perspectives that they're really familiar with as family members who have uh, or as people who have family members who have Down syndrome. So that was really, really exciting. In terms of, like, I guess the other big thing is, like, and I think King Arthur's uh, more successful at this than Peter Panty's was, is, like, how do you make this material, some of it can be quite weird, accessible to an audience that's not in on the making of it. Um, and that's been a really great project and a really great thing to focus on, and it's something we've really worked really hard on is how to, how to uh, let people in on the perspective, how to make the moments of extraordinary revelation that happen when Niall associates, you know, when he goes, uh, I don't know, when he makes associations between things that you don't expect at all, how to capture those in a way that an audience can understand, can actually make sense of. And that's been really, really exciting. And I think we're, you know, we're 80% the way there in terms of figuring out how to do that based on audiences' reactions uh, in Toronto and Ottawa with King Arthur, which mm. is, I think, uh, further along than we were with Peter Panties, which is, for some people, I think, quite mystifying. <laughs> <laughs> Please do correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but I recall reading and also seeing kind of the trailer for King Arthur's Night and yeah. uh, being told that it was every single show that you guys do is not the same. So depending on the lines that are spoken that night, the story will morph or transform in the, the direction that is unique to that night. Um, is that, is that um, a major part of this play? And if so, were the actors that were part of this production and even the cast or the crew members that were part of this production, did they... Uh, was it hard to get people kind of to jump on that same level of <laughs> of uh, improvisation? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. Um, so yes, you're right. I mean, the, the show is basically the same every night, but there are sections of the show where, like, letting our some letting particularly Niall and uh, Tiffany, who plays Guinevere, mm-hmm. both of whom have Down syndrome, instead of because um, we make a lot of the text out of transcription anyway like it's like or out of it's like verbatim it's like things we've recorded and then and then organized but trying to make them just say the same thing over and over just killed it but if we just let them improvise they generally they follow the same structure all the time the same things more or less occur but they're free to whatever's occurring for them in the moment just to speak about that it made the scene so much better um and so we learned that and so, yes, there are. there's one big group scene in particular where all of us neurotypical actors have to be on our toes 
There are also several scenes that Niall has with Mordred, his son, his, his bastard son who's trying to take over his kingdom, where Niall's free to improvise, and the actor who's playing Mordred, Nathan, sticks with the same lines, um, but he has to react however whatever actually comes at him. And uh, no, it hasn't been hard to find people um, who are excited by that, because it's the most thrilling thing in the world. Like, because it's so present and it demands such intense presence. I mean, it's only certain kinds of actors who would, I think, be interested in it. But those who are are just so, uh, in my experience so far working on the project, so thrilled to be involved in a project that just demands your full, your full, you can't phone this in in any way. You have to be absolutely present with each other. And that's a really exciting feeling on stage. Like, not, you know, so, so much of what people say is, like, cool about theater is that, like, you don't know what's going to happen next or, you know, but in fact, almost always everything's rehearsed to death and you know exactly what's going to happen next. There's a kind of liveness that comes from having to really pay attention to what happens next because in our show it's true at any moment anything could happen. One night in Toronto, Tiffany, just in a really appropriate moment, just started screaming. And she was acting. She was totally acting. We checked in with her afterwards. She was completely acting. She was feeling the moment. She just started screaming. It made total sense. And we all were just like, oh, my God. Like, but she was, she was inside the piece. Like, she was playing the piece, and afterwards was completely fine. And wow. that's because – and that kind of commitment and that kind of ability um, is really inspiring, I think, to the rest of us. This is probably a very simple question, but now that you guys are bringing it home, bringing the piece to Vancouver, do you have high hopes for um, the fact that, you know, this is an audience that you've, you're quite familiar with? You probably yes. have a lot of um, friends and maybe even family members in the audience, but uh, uh, how, are you, how are you feeling? I mean, being back in Vancouver and also... No, it's not a simple... It yeah, push. <laughs> yeah, it's not a simple question at all. I mean, it's a great question. I mean, I think we're thrilled to be back um, and to be doing this show for our, our community um, because this show in many ways is, is, although the content is not about community, the, enact, the enact itself, the event itself is very much about community. And Norman Armour, who's the executive director of Push Festival, and a longtime friend and somebody who's presented our work many times, but he said, you know, he said, I think this, this show is, is, is a show that in many ways like could only come from East Vancouver. and. That's probably that's not exclusively true because there's other shows like this around the world, but there is something about the it coming from from this community and our community that it feels very uh, true, and we get to share that with our with our community here, and that's uh, really exciting. It's particularly exciting for our community actors who get to share this amazing project that they're doing, which is very unlike anything they've done before with their families and with the people who know them. Who so far, and there've been you know relatives and stuff who've come in Toronto and. Like are just floored, um, you know. As we we were from the very beginning when we started teaching classes, Niall and I and Jamie, who directs the show, and Veda, who's our musical director, taught classes at the, the Down Syndrome Research Foundation, and that's where we we found our, our our community actors and and asked them, met them, and asked them to do it. The things that they do on stage now, if you would ask me if I thought they would have been capable of doing those things three years ago when we started working with them, I would have said absolutely not. And that says way more about my own judgments and preconceptions and prejudices than it does about anything else. Um, and so sharing all that success is really exciting, too. Mm, 
Really, on that note of success, it leads right into my next question, which is about your success. Um, oh, yeah. Because really, yeah. you are a nationally recognized playwright that has achieved really a level of success that many people in the industry only aspire to. And I'm speaking primarily of the fact that you are named recipient of 2017 Sim Siminovich Prize. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. That is really, really um, amazing. And so, um, like you were talking about the prejudices and other preconceptions that you had come over working on this project, what yeah. are some of the other major milestones you think that has helped lead your career in artistry to where it is now? Well, well I mean, winning the Sinovich was an extraordinary honor. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, and, and it's important not to take these things too seriously at the same time. Um, there are many, you know, whether you win, I mean, I, you probably wouldn't know who the, my fellow nominees for the award through this year, but they were three extraordinary uh, writers who I admire and love so much. And so whether you, you know whether you win the award or, or not is ultimately whatever. Kind of at, at, in the final analysis comes down to a bit of luck, um, but I'm you know I'll take it. Um, um, in terms of milestones, I think, I think the biggest thing is for me has always been being uh, kind of ferocious about wanting to work on projects that um, are meaningful to me, that weren't just jobs. If I was going to be in this rather low-paid, you know, rather marginal career that not, you know, most of the time or a lot of the time taken all that seriously by the wider culture, that um, that I was going to do things that really were felt significant to me and I was going to work with people I really wanted to work with. That those were the upsides, the benefits of, of, of doing something that's maybe a little obscure. Um, and sticking to that, uh, I think, has been a really important value that has kind of seen me through and, and has meant that I've just developed so many extraordinary collaborative relationships, many of which are happening in this show. My friend Jamie, who's the director of this show and, and very much is in on the creation of it, and he and I have made several shows together that, you know, we toured around the world together, and Veda of Hilly, who is the music in the show, she and I have made a number of shows together um, that I have these really precious collaborative relationships that are that are uh, absolutely central to my Nile same thing that are central to my to my work and uh, not just to my work but to my life mm. um, and 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 it really is those that I think when I teach which I do a fair bit I often talk when I talk to students who are like always of course thinking about what are they how are they going to possibly make a living and what is going to happen I tell them that like the relationships you're developing with your peers those are the ones that are going to carry you through, not with old people like me, like old people like me who seem like they're established and might have the answer, don't actually have the answer. The people who have the answer in your world are your peers and your friends and the people you love. Those are the people that matter. And, and that's certainly been true for me. This is a lot to see, my girl. Thanks for listening. That concludes my interview with Marcus Youssef on King Arthur's Night. The details of the production run date and times are as follows. We are a part of the 2018 Push International Performing Arts Festival. We're performing at the Freddie Wood Theater, which is at UBC, January 31st to February 4th. For tickets, you should probably go to pushfestival.ca or newworldtheater.com. And New World Theater has one W. Don't ask why. It's a long story and not worth telling, but it has one W. Next time. <laughs> Next yeah. time. That will be the story. Yeah. Great, great. All right. Talk to you later, Marcus. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. After death battle, it would be My name forever. is Christine Kim, reporting for the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. I want the bread.
stand roof. You want to say, you want to say goodbye to these guys? Anyhow, that's Andrew. He plays the saxon. He's a really, really good uh, saxon warrior. Well, that sounds kind of amazing. Now, uh, we'll be right back with yet another interview and a pre-night discussion, both of which are regarding UBC Theater's She Kills Monsters, which is ongoing and amazing. And uh, before we do that, though, uh, a quick PSA break, because of course there is. Hold on, tick. Birthday Celebration Bash. Don't worry about a thing and head upstairs at the Grandview Legion Hall on Saturday, February 10th for live performances by Canada Reggae Sensation, Steel from Toronto, Boom Daddy Band, Redemption Sound, DJ Bradley, and DJ George Barrett with doors at 8.30. Jamaican food and refreshments are going to be on sale. Okay. Uh, hello, everyone. This is the Arts Report on CITR 1.1. One way that old clunker is going to make you feel good again, donate it to Bullying Canada. Check this out. Free towing or pickup of your old vehicle, a tax-deductible receipt, and a super easy process. Online at bullyingcanada.ca. Get rid of that old vehicle and feel good about supporting real solutions for change in your community. Donate your old or used vehicle to Bullying Canada today. Full details online at bullyingcanada.ca. Even in my shocking history of incompetence at the radio boards, that was a new level. Uh, so, that, so those that was PSAs, small song medley, some information in there. Um, yeah, it was confusing to me too. Don't worry about it. Um, and uh, now, before we uh, have our discussion, this is an interview I did with Aiden Wright, a uh, gentleman who plays Orcus, actual D and D character, by the way, in uh, She Kills Monsters. And give it a listen; it's kind of delightful. 9.9 FM, broadcasting from the unceded Musqueam territory of UBC campus in Point Grey. I'm your host, Jake Clark, and today we are joined by Aiden Wright, one of the actors in UBC Theatre's She Kills Monsters. Aiden, how you doing? Pretty good, how you doing? Can't complain. Nice. Usual sunny Vancouver weather. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the first, when I heard about She Kills Monsters, is immediately very interesting to me. It's a play about D&D, more or less. Yeah, it's like, it's it, it takes place within uh, the confines of like a D&D world and whatnot, but it kind of goes back to the heart of the play kind of goes down to older sister dealing with the grief of the death of her younger sister and that sort of therapy she finds like a therapeutic source of, of using like D&D to kind of reconnect with that and dealing with her kind of feelings of guilt and ultimately forgiving herself. Some of the play occurs in an imagined world 
equals something that occurs in reality? Yeah, absolutely. What's the ratio on that, would you say? Um, well, I would say most of the world is within the sort of the confines of this D&D quest that they're doing in Newlandia, as they call it. <laughs> and, um, and then periodically she will, like, be taken out of the world and be in the real world and whatnot. But it's interesting because the whole set is like all just dice and it's very impressionistic, which is very interesting how we have like been able to like differentiate between these two worlds using this like very, very sort of impressionistic set. And is it like the sort of like the Wizard of Oz where characters exist in reality and then they have their equivalents in the fantasy world? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. My character, um, his name is Orcus and he's like a giant demon overlord. He's like, you know, got big wings because it's like crazy mask and he's, he's kind of described as being the slacker demon. But um, as as the play goes on, you learn that he is actually quite a young, like a 14-year-old kid who's just trying to live out his fantasy of being like a big, strong, interesting person that he doesn't get to be in his day-to-day life. And obviously with that, and there, of course, the dealing with grief, is there an escapist element present in the game, do you think? Do you think the play yeah. pushes that? Absolutely. This play is, is completely dealing with like the basically five stages of grief and Agnes not being able to come to terms with the death of her sister. She laments about how she w- did, ever didn't really know her. Like she didn't know that her sister was actually lesbian or had the, those sort of feeling romantic feelings to one of her friends, Lilith. She didn't even Lily, and she didn't even know that like that her sister was even into D and D. You know who? And as you learn through the play, like the character Tilly, the younger sister, she was a huge part of this. Com- like community within Athens, Ohio. Athens, Ohio. Right? Yeah, that's where, that's where the that's where the real world. That's where it takes place. Is that a real town? Nicole? Yeah, it is. It's a college town down in Ohio. Yeah, I know there's an Athens, Georgia, and that's also a college town. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's where Pat- Patterson Hood lives. There is how I know it. And ev- does everyone play sort of play a multiple role? Everyone in the cast has the role corresponding reality of fantasy. Oh yeah, yeah. Like all the roles that talk, well, except for Pharaoh, because we don't Pharaoh's this fairy, and we don't see her like real world equivalent, but. There are succubi, which correspond with like these cheerleaders, which bullied the younger sister who died Tilly throughout her whole like um, school life and is high that school one life. Of the Lilith characters. No, the, Lilith is um, Lilith is this like sexy demon queen who's also like Tilly's girlfriend or a crush she had, not girlfriend. And and she is like this young sort of just graduating high school girl in the real world. And I, I guess the question, sorry, where I was kind of leading with that was, uh, yeah. as as an actor, do you think there's a similarity between role playing and acting? Oh, totally. Absolutely. As an actor for myself, I it's trying to suspend your disbelief for a brief moment in which you're able to accept the rules and your role within, like, this imaginary circumstances, which you have to do all the time if you're playing, like, D- like D&D or any other, like, major role-playing game. You know, it's like when you're playing an elf, I, I've always found it's always really helps me to trying to, like, be like, okay, what would it be like to be a creature that lives almost internally and have, like, such a long lifespan? And, like, what significant things would, you know, how would I react differently to, like, my different situations? You know, like, how would I engage in battle? And and it helps just bring that world alive. Much like in acting, once you accept that, like, everything becomes alive and becomes much more interesting and fun to fun to do. So you've yeah. played D&D before. Yeah, yeah, I used to, <laughs> used to play when I was younger. Yeah, I was, um, used to, we had, like, old school first and second edition books and whatnot, so it was usually just me and my brother and a couple of our friends, and we would, you know, very much homebrew games and much, very much, like, adopting our own, own like, sort of set of rules and whatnot, but what really I fell in love with in D, with D&D is the storytelling. Like, that sort of improv and making things up as you go along, but trying to keep it within the confines of this, of this world. Interactive storytelling, yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting to me, because like John Favreau said oh, that yeah. he was a DM 
and that apparently really did fuel like a lot of the writing process behind, well, among other things, Iron Man too. Yeah. And Dan Harmon on it. Dan Harmon is a podcast. Oh yeah, Dan Harmon Town, man. Yeah, and like and Harmon Quest is great. Yeah, I've seen I've seen the Aubrey Plaza episode. Yeah, it, it's great. It's really good. But yeah, it's I think that's one of the things I find like that we do. Like 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 storytelling and being and, and, and like in specific with Dan Harmon, just like being able to open yourself vulnerably like that, you know, it just creates such engaging narratives. Uh, like it's hard not to watch, and I'm really happy to be part of a production like this one in which that happens. In which not only like you can take away all the spectacle and all this sort of stuff. But it really comes back down to this honesty of, of dealing with grief and dealing with like a sense of being unfulfilled in what you've done and, re- and your, your regrets and like with the people that you love. And it's nice for me because it's like from what I take, it's just like you gotta cherish those moments that you have with the, with the people around you. Is I guess a good question here to say: Does this play sort of reflect upon culture or the culture of D and D at all? I think this this is more personal. I think there there are aspects of of the of the culture of D and D of like the sort of the '90s nerd. Like I think this play is very much rooted in within the concept of contents of the nineties and within that sort of time frame. Is it set in the nineties? Yeah, it's in the nineties. Ninety five, that's when it's supposed to be set. So it's very much, I would say, almost like period piece because of like the references they make. Like my character, you know, re- makes all these references to like Quantum Leap. I talk about, I talk about Friends. I talk about, was it Different Strokes? Like all these like sitcoms of the '90s. Like so that reference pool. All right, yeah. and that's definitely coming back in vogue right now. So oh yeah, it's totally there. And I, I guess this sort of begs the question, but because um, the Women's March anniversary is this year, yeah, yeah, is coming up. We've lived through GamerGate, and we've recently lived through. Yeah. Yeah. Me too, and those have reflected sort of on this aspect of culture in a very certain way. Yeah. Would you say the play has a commentary on that, especially being a play with a primarily female cast? For me, what's really nice about this play is that this play is centered around is centered around women, and it's telling a very different story from what you usually get from like your, your like kind of concepts of like D and D. Because like especially like the first and second edition, like you know like female characters couldn't be certain classes. They had certain like skill, like 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 they they couldn't be as like the the female characters couldn't be as strong as the male characters. The female characters couldn't have like it wasn't charisma they had, but they had like beauty, right? And it's like these sort of things, which is like you don't usually like, at the time when I was younger, I never really thought about it, but like now seeing like you know what everything has been happening has been really re- making me reflect upon like oh wow this is my own internalized misogyny that I didn't recognize, and so it's really nice to see a show which takes it back you know and brings it back to being like a very female female empowering show like i was going i was going at it through one of my cast members heidi and we we're talking about how many like characters she kills in the play and i think i think we got to about 18 characters she kills in the play it's a pretty impressive body count it is this is very great and as comparative like to my character i only killed three in in the total of the play and it just goes to show just like how much just in the confines of the fight choreography like it's very much female heavy just like doing all these crazy badass um, moves and whatnot like lots of wrestling moves like we have um, yeah we have um, our, our fight choreographers they're, they've, they've been very focusing on making it as, as cool and as interesting as possible and making putting the, the girls at the forefront of that literally is, sort of taking literally. control of the narrative well because yeah. you can do that exactly like, yeah because it depends on how you play it's an interactive story exactly and it's really nice to see that it's really nice to to have that change and yeah and I 
was it the Brechtel test? Like, I don't think... Bechtel test, yeah. Bechtel test, yeah. I don't think that this play would would, would um, pass the, the reverse of the Bechtel test. Interesting. <laughs> which is really, which I which I really enjoy. Like, almost all the interactions between any of the men just by themselves are about, like, the other, the other women in the show, which is, like, you know, just a fun little fact of the show. That's interesting. Yeah. All right, and uh, the show, the opening night is tomorrow. Yep. How long is it running, and where can we see it? Yep, the opening is tomorrow. It, um, I guess that's Thursday the 18th, and it runs till February 3rd. You can see it at the Chan Center in the Chitellis studio, and it starts every night at 7.30 and runs for about an hour and 15 minutes. That's awesome. Yeah. Looking forward to seeing it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Great to have you, Abe. Yeah, thanks for having me. Cheers. And that was intentional. I will say that. That was not the computer this time, because that song is in She Kills Monsters. And to talk about She Kills Monsters, I am joined today by two of our terrific correspondents, Ileana and Shivs. Hi! Amazing harmony there, actually. Thank you. Hey, there's a lot of great fight scenes in this. Aiden was not underselling that one, and this is the soundtrack to one of them, and I gotta say right now that's pretty boss yeah i god the first like couple of minutes you're just like okay there's gonna be a fight scene there's just gonna be a lot of people falling around but no it got like really into it and i was like oh man this isn't this isn't the kind of play i usually see i completely agree i saw the first fight scene i was getting into it i'm like okay, they've done a nice job, you know, they've clearly, like, put some effort in, and then we get to this huge music sequence with this song, what's the name again, Jake? Take the power back! Correct! (laughs) We get that, and it's one fight scene after another, and it's not, like, a one-on-one, no, it's, like, this entire group, and at one point, it's hard to see, like, where you should be paying attention because it's amazing. All of these characters that are so prominent have very character-specific interactions. You've got uh, Agnes, who is not... She's completely unaccustomed to this world, so you can see how inadept she is at fighting, so you want to follow her, but you also want to follow her sister Tilly, who is a paladin, and you know she's going to be amazing. And it's very clear that all of these choreographies were worked on individually, even though they happened simultaneously. So it was clearly very well thought out. Which is a pretty good encapsulation of like a D&D game, because you do sort of do the... Well, it's people playing individual characters, right? So mm-hmm. you roll and you act differently based on that. Now, I honestly don't know where to start with this. I mean, we did start here, but this was kind of awesome. Yeah, it was, I, I love the show. Yeah, it was just it was just so much fun. There was just a lot of like hidden nerdy knowledge that you could get into and be like, "Oh, they made that reference, or they made that reference." And and you've played D&D, right? Yes, I mm-hmm. have played D&D before. Have and, you ships? Don't call me out. No, I haven't. <laughs> it was like, I, I usually, but I haven't played in a while, so it's a continuum mm-hmm. between the three of us right now. That's true. We're like extremes and the little one in the middle. <laughs> We're on a spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> but sorry, I interrupted. Like, Oh, no, no, no. It's fine. Yeah. Like, uh, I've been playing D&D for a couple of days now with my friends. It's been pretty fun so far. I'm a bard uh, dwarf. So oh, that's Aww, a that fun. Oh, that sounds kind of cute. <laughs> 
fun one. That, that that's interesting. I, I when I when I used to play, I always did rangers or wizard. Like those were those were the ones, the only two classes I think I ever played. And I just uh, you know. I, I have really fond memories of it of, of playing the game because like I had uh, I was actually turned on to it by uh, a neighbor of mine and I got some source books from him and I just kept buying these source books because I love the artwork and I love these really detailed character histories and I have a whole bunch of them. Some of them I probably never use I never used for a campaign. I just had them because I was just because I, I never DM'd mm-hmm. really. Like mm-hmm. I, I designed a campaign once but I didn't DM it and. Yeah. Like, there were some amazing bits of, like you said, like, Orcus is an actual, he's a demon prince. Yeah. It's... In, um, in D&D. So that was, like, that, that's the character Aiden plays. Yeah, it was... And they look like him, too. It's got the... Oh, the... really? Yeah, it's, the character is, well, the character's, like, 20 feet tall in the illustrations, but he's got, like, the red, um, the skull-like horned face, the red skin, the, the tattered wings, because he's lit an undead demon, which is kind of funny, because... Orcus is a Roman death, is basically a Roman death god or death demon. It's kind of funny because there's also a Calliope and they're in Athens. <laughs> Characters named Calliope. Oh, yeah. I, I loved that this this kind of platform is being used to tell like a very in, interesting and like very in, kind of intense tragic storyline i thought that was really awesome because whenever i play D, each of my characters has like a little something of me in them maybe it's like turned up like 110 in them but it's like really awesome to see that because i feel that people just think D is just like still like just boring stuff and i don't know i just think that was a really cool way to show these kind of like character development and character growth. Yeah, it was a great juxtaposition of drama and comedy, I would say that for sure. You can see how it's a very intense storyline, you know, a 24-year-old, 15-year-old uh, sister just died, and she's clearly grieving, but it's it's hilarious. It, it sounds almost mean to say it, but if you watch the play, it's just hilarious. It's very well done. It doesn't disrespect the concept and the matter of the death but at the same time you know it keeps the audience a beat and it keeps them engaged and honestly jake i want you to ask me if i like this show okay how much did you love it (laughs) i loved it so much that i am going again on saturday and i dragged six people with me oh man dang nice I like to think, I actually feel quite flattered that so many people showed up because I recommended it. It makes me feel like my stamp of approval means something. This is a show that I can literally recommend without reservation. Mm-hmm. It, it really is. And the last time I saw a show like that would probably have been last year with, well, The Lonesome West, I still wouldn't. Well, The Lonesome West was just hilarious to me, but I, mm-hmm. I don't know if I was able to look at that one straight. Like, it, this is legitimately a show that no matter where you're at, it's it's going to be, d- mm-hmm. despite how specific it is culturally, and it really is, it's incredibly relatable. Mm-hmm. And it's, like like you said, I, we were talking about this earlier, you said it feels really present, too. Yeah, it really does. Like, I personally thought it was a UBC original. It is not. It is 20 years old. But it, it feels ahead of is its it time. 
I, I thought that's what you told me. I, I, I did mention that, but I just mm-hmm. wondered, wait, was it written 20 years ago or just set 20 years ago? Could be, yeah. It's set 20 years ago, though. Okay. Like it's set a good ways back. It's a Kinoen, the, the woman, I, I really hope I pronounced that correctly, has I'm, been... I um, think it might be uh, him, actually. I might be wrong. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I think I looked it up. More I, I expect. <laughs> I only say this because I personally, looking at the play, what is expect, it with me and names today? I expected it to be a woman as well. Like the way it's written, I think it's quite impressive. Uh, that you know, I, I can't assume someone's gender, gender and sexuality, but it was a very, it's a great play for queer m- women. And if a man if a man did write it indeed, I'm very impressed. Yeah, and even if you don't even like the story, the production is so good. Yeah, good lord. Whoever did the, the lighting and the props oh. for this, the performances are great. We will get to those. Mm-hmm. But the mock-ups for 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 Tiamat and for the beholder that just shows up for oh. a little bit of time. It's there for literally less than a minute, and you can just see the detail. It's amazing. The painting on, oh, so we were talking about the props before this because we couldn't even wait for the for us to be live to even have this discussion. We were talking about how the props were D&D dices. It's die, die, die. And dice, dice is plural. Dice is the plural. What? Oh dice. my god. I'm an English major. This is so embarrassing. Well, so am I. And I've, I've <laughs> I, I once, because I've been counting metrical emphases for so long, and the first time I was playing a game of charades and I got pirates and I immediately thought three syllables. Uh, because I've been counting metrical feet for poems for so mm, long, the ES like kind of registers as a syllable. As, so. as a little tangent of my own, I once asked a friend, hey, what's YOLO? Is that like a football team or something? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can relate. Anyway, coming back to the props and the lights. Well, the lights literally were setting the scene. Like, they were the scene. And it was beautiful. It was done brilliantly. I don't know who did it, but respect. Oh, my God. The props were just... So well painted. As someone who paints myself, I can totally appreciate it. I've also, like, worked with some crews uh, before. And it's just, like, people are willing to half-ass, like, uh, paintings of props. Because if it just gives the general suggestion of it, sometimes people don't want to put in the time. But this was just gorgeous. So was the Beholder. There's, I, I'm so in love. The costumes also mm-hmm. were very much detailed a lot as I was watching the kind of fight scenes that were going on I, you focus like a lot on the characters and as you're focusing on the characters you're also focusing on their costume and like looking at it they had like a bunch of buckles and a bunch of like different straps and like ar- uh, like uh, arm protectors and they were just very much decked out so well and it was also though in that sort of 90s D&D tradition where because most of the, the characters are female like it's uh, shall we say a certain limitation to the armor Although Orcus himself ain't wearing much armor, if I, any at all. That's true, I guess. The, the, the thing about the Orcus costume, which Aiden was wearing, uh, he had to break dance in that. <laughs> wearing, like, this morph suit, this sort of uh, breeches mm-hmm. um, and the, the boots, and then this demon head with wings on the back, which cannot have been easy to balance with. And he break. He, they were, they were, there was break dancing to Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. 
<laughs> and they pulled it off. The costumes were lovely. I think the only thing I could uh, just potentially very nitpickily uh, criticize was Tilly's tights. I looked at them, and the first thought I had was, are those from Hot Topic? Just like these are these <laughs> galaxy tights. I think, I know in the promo pictures, though, they're different tights, which are much better to me personally, but I just found that really funny. I love how you're very much thinking you're like, those tights do not match. I was just, I those couldn't tights, help myself. Though. I just, you know, yeah. it f- I think it would fit her character, though. It's just like, you know, if you're a gay teen in the 90s, you just stroll on to Hot Topic because you've got so much angst inside you. And then you pick the galaxy, galaxy tights. It's just, I love it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, actually, come to think of it, maybe that was the verisimilitude of it. Like, I, I didn't notice that at all. Uh, I, I wonder why. I don't know why. I couldn't stop obsessing over it. <laughs> I think I was just checking out Tilly. Yep. <laughs> Probably all of the, well... well all... Everyone in this, like, a lot of a lot of people, the different degrees of very compelling charisma in the performances mm-hmm. in this one. And I think that um, you got Jed... Uh, and Jed is a guy who's sort of got a booming voice, Jed Weiss, who plays Chuck, the DM. Oh. And, like, you kind of want the dungeon master of a campaign to be a ham because he's got, he really does have to paint that picture. Mm-hmm. And God love him. The man, whenever he's doing the, the DM, like, because the, the, the play does seek into outright fantasy. But there is the points, especially when he kicks it off in the beginning, mm-hmm. where you you see this sort of personality um, infusing this verbosity to it. And on the other side of that, you have Drian Carlson as Vera, who's uh, the guidance counselor at the school, Agnes, who's played by Natalie Bachman, by the way, um, is working at. Mm-hmm. And she's the straight woman uh, in the comedy sense, but also literally, which would, I think, make her a minority in this cast. Um, <laughs> it does! I love it! It's it's dominated by queer women. She's She is uh, very... She is a um, delightful sort of... Because she, she is the rock mm-hmm. against her. It's like, the buck of sanity stops at her, and she's able to, like... Because the, the characters like Agnes, her fiancé, Miles, who is, uh, is played by uh, Louis Lynn, and... That when they come to her, like in different degrees of, uh, of uh, you know, frayed nerves, or even Raphael Ruiz's Steve, who <laughs> I love that character, <laughs> who's just like a walk on character who keeps getting killed. Oh, yeah, Steven, like, right? I am the great mage Steve. Ah! Oh! And there's like getting stabbed, heart ripped out, just. Mm-hmm. Even in real life, he didn't have much luck. Is. is, is well, okay, so that character was dressed in a sweater vest, collared shirt, khakis, and brogues. Which way to pay, paint a picture. That was the way I dressed in high school. <laughs> Love it. I'm not oh. going to lie. I kind of didn't like Steve. No. I, I'm sorry. I thought he... Neither did the universe. <laughs> I just thought that... In the play, in the play. Yeah. I just thought that 
the kind of joke about him like getting killed a bunch and just coming on and then automatically dying the next like few seconds just kind of got a little too repetitive and I just kind of got mm-hmm. bored of him. I mean, I didn't know how he fit into the world proper, but I just I just liked that that character was kind of there. <laughs> well, he was I, in I the liked... real world. Uh, he no, uh... I, no, I, I, as in when he showed up in the real world. Oh, okay. I kind of liked it because like, oh man, he can't even catch a break in his imagination. Yeah. <laughs> That's that that that's that's a certain level of well, I, actually, I could relate to that. <laughs> I think they make fun of the plot convenience of having him there too, which is really great. I believe it's in the cheerleader fighting scene. When do you hear of that? There's a dance scene. Okay, I'm not gonna get into it, but it's amazing. No, I think you um, kind of have to. Yes. Okay. Amazing. <laughs> Let's you gave spoil it free this. Rain. Uh, okay. So literally. You have the scene where you think, oh, God, it's going to be amazing. It's another fight scene. And they just go, let's dance battle with this absolute seriousness. And it just gets you. And there you go. They've broken out the choreography. And it is beautiful. Well, the Succubi cheerleaders and nostalgic music. I mean, that's kind of, mm-hmm. you know, Tumblr perfect. Oh, but right. before uh, My original point was before the... Uh, Cheer, uh, cheerleaders were challenged to a dance battle. Can I just say, I can totally see Agnes as a cheerleader when she was in high school, so I think that's what justifies her dance skills. Hmm. Anyway. Good point. Mm-hmm. Um, I, Steve just shows up with two swords so conveniently with him, and the cheerleaders seduce him and just take the swords. And I think it's just they're making fun of how just ready, uh, readily avail- available Steve was there. And I thought that was great. As a storyteller, as a DM, mm-hmm. you kind of have to do that in points. It's 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 part it's part of collaborative, basically spontaneous storytelling. You do have to get to a place, but how you get there depends. You know, mm-hmm. all moving parts. It's interesting because they could have just had the cheerleaders enter the stage with the swords, but they made a conscious decision to use Steve to do so to create that comic effect. I thought that, I, I thought that was all right. No? Okay, I enjoyed it. Oh, also, since we were talking about Vera, can I just say that I walked up to Joanne, and I talked to her, and she's a lovely human being. I was just <laughs> talking to her, and I was fangirling all over her because I've seen her three last productions. And she was like, can I hug you? Well, oh, my God. Like, well, I, I reviewed, she was in the Commedia dell'arte with Amanda. Yes! And I, I didn't recognize her because she was playing almost the exact opposite character. Because the yeah. character in the Commedia dell'arte is uh, uh, a large ham! Mm-hmm. Or just Italian, whatever. Uh, <laughs> and the char- her character in this play is this sort of situationally very aware sort of mm-hmm. whip-crack person. And... Uh, like those two, like it was to the point where I didn't recognize her. Yeah, and I'm like, oh yeah. There were also. She kind of makes me a bad reviewer when I think about it. <laughs> no, I think she's actually just amazing in the way she just falls into her roles. There was these uh, two MFA directed plays as well, in which she played this widow. It was just like this bitter, sarcastic widow, and I look at her in these three performances, and it's just there's so much of a dissonance there. Yeah, she's got range. Mm-hmm. Unlike someone, she's not being typecasted. We're going to come around to that one, aren't we? <laughs> look, look, I, 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 I'm trying. I'm trying. Like, I'm either a drunk, a teacher, or a sociopath. I mean, if that's not life-informing art, I don't know what is. Anyway. 
I didn't know this about you. Back to the play! <laughs> <laughs> Laughter concealing real pain. Uh, <laughs> so, like, like, there's really... I, I, did, I, I did, like, just honestly, this play was incredibly well put together because mm-hmm. all of these elements, one, they don't exist at the expense of the other. Like, there were props for the gelatinous cube, which, oh. that, that's fairly well in the Monstrous Manual, right? Like, yeah. you kind of got to... That's an actual thing mm, in oh. D&D. Yeah, is is like because there's oozes in D and D, and one is the gelatinous cube, which is literally just a giant a gelatinous dye that rolls on people and starts digesting them. Oh, I got so this. excited when I saw the bear bugs. I was like, Bug, the bug bears, bug yeah. bear. Sorry, <laughs> I was so excited. I was like, oh my god, I know you so well, and I love you guys, but I have to kill you. Like, like, I just honestly, just a couple of gnolls and an orc, and you like that's 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 every monster in the the player's manual, mm-hmm. basically. Oh, well, elk dwarfs too, but like the the uh, yeah, like they they really did. Whoever wrote this, and certainly whoever put it on, because like there's props that are D fours and d6s and there's the floor projection it looks like a game board but at one point it, it's interlocking d20s oh yeah and there's a dragon shadow man like that was <sighs> so good. wow Oof. like the, the, the whoever does the projection seeing this in the theater especially in the gallery mm. seating good lord there's a lot of art on stage and there's a lot of people work together Mm-hmm. and made something very synchronous and very incredible because of that for this. Yeah, I think everything really shined all together. There was the cast, there was the crew, you know, there was uh, light and tech. And I think, like, at least a lot of the shows I've watched on UBC so far are fairly cast-centric. Like, you can see that the cast is driving them. Of course, there's so much work put in background, but you can really just... Everybody is pulling their weight so hard in this. It's just a well-worked, well-produced production. It's great. Yeah, and like if if you've if you've if you play Dandy, you're gonna get a lot out of this. There's a twist at the end. I'm not giving it away, but mm. you can you can you can see you know exactly which one I'm talking about. Yes, you can tell that there's the the line they do to indicate that. If you've played D&D, you're probably going through like, oh, okay, that's a small idiosyncrasy. But then it comes around, you're like, oh, so they knew that. Okay. It was such a, it was such a kind of a great D&D, like, final twist. We're not, we're not going to spoil it, but it is yeah. like, it, 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 it is a good twist. And we're not touching on the drama a lot in this, mm. but honestly, the drama is, well, I, I would say, like, I'm a straight guy, but I, I would still say that it's, it's certainly a really good drama about grief mm-hmm. and discovery. Yeah, yeah definitely. I, I definitely mm-hmm. cried for it. I, mm-hmm. It was it made it so much better, I think, with the, this kind of D&D comedy central. Mm-hmm. I think it was really good. Like, and that's that's really all you can ask for. This is this is probably going to be on my best of the year highlights, I'd, yeah. I'd say. <laughs> that's, that's the term, highlights. Because this this and the Crucible I was really looking forward to. Yeah. I, 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 I've got, actually, the funny thing is, I got. I have really high expectations for um, for the Crucible, and for this, I actually didn't know what to expect. Mm-hmm. So going into this, just whoa! Like even what Aiden told me, like I yeah. came into this, like he a lot of the twists, like the twist about sexuality. Well, that mm-hmm. happens about halfway in. Yeah. Like I was informed of that, and I still legitimately didn't know where the play was going. Mm. Okay, I totally called that to. Um, 
do do people know exactly what the sexuality yes. test is? Yeah, Lovely. You... I totally called that Tilly was gay. I just had no idea that they were going to make it canon. And I loved it so much. I just have so much praise for this show on so many accounts. Like, I'm never this... I promise, I'm not easy. I'm not easy to please, but this was just... It blew me away. Um, do we want to do some criticism? If you can, we got we got two more minutes left. What okay. can you do in two minutes? Um, okay, I think we were talking about Agnes. And, like, do you want to say something? Sure. Uh, I guess one part where Agnes and her boyfriend, Miles, have been dating for three years, and there's this kind of joke going on that they should get married by now. Like, it's been three years, you should be married. And that was... It's kind of annoying after a while, honestly. Especially for, like, a play that plays up its queer culture so much. You have this heteronormativity. And it's like, obviously, it's great that it's fine to have a straight couple. I'm not saying there isn't heterosexuality in the world. But there is a difference between heteronormativity and heterosexuality. And it also, I think, I just honestly didn't see much chemistry between Miles and Agnes and that's not in any way a criticism for the actors who played them I think the writer just didn't portray them to be that great like everybody in the world including Tilly and Vera who knew Agnes best I would say just didn't approve of Miles and the fact that they ended up together in the end was rather anticlimactic yeah um I think another huge thing I guess I really didn't like it when I think uh Tilly kind of alludes that Miles could have, or... Well, that one, to me, that one, to me, was, like, uh, like people are not kind of perfect, and that was legitimately kind of douche. That was a terrible thing to do if it was untrue. But, mm. like, you know, teenagers do that. like, And that was something that, to me, like, this is a, like, yeah, kind of a, definitely a weird, mm-hmm. definitely a tonal shift, my good God. Oh, okay. yeah. But um, it, it, it's a really short-lived one because you're like, yeah, it's a, she's a teenager, and you know. I have two. I have a double-pronged response for that. I can see it going both ways. I think when Jake and I were there watching it together, when he, uh, I know I remember the exact lines, and uh, Tilly and uh, Agnes are uh, arguing about Miles, and Tilly just says, "He touched me," and you know, it's just, it's. It's expressed with so much, and then you're there just frozen, waiting for the re- more, right? And then a- Agnes goes, did he really? Well, and you can... S- and we do we want to spoil that one? We don't want to spoil that one. I, I think we already did. Damn it. I think it's, I think it's and, an okay yeah. thing to spoil, especially with this kind of climate that yeah, we have. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. And then she just said, okay, no, he didn't. And then you can see this huge relief go through the I could, audience. I could hear, like, the audible yeah. sigh from the guy next to us. Like, mm-hmm. oh. Yeah, I think, so, A, I think it did really well to just grab the audience and let them go. Like, you can see that reaction. But, B, I think it plays into this, like, I don't know if I like that joke, in the, especially being played right now. I think it would be a conscious decision to take that out, considering what's going on with Me Too, Time's Up, Harvey Weinstein, and this idea that, you know, women might be lying. I don't think it's something to lie about. I get that she's a teenager. It's just a one-moment thing. But I don't know if that that particular joke is well-timed right now. Yeah, that that 
Definitely. I was, I was like, very shocked. I was like, oh, no, it's this is what it's going to turn into. And I was like... Well, it, if it did go that way, this would have been a l- it, pretty difficult to sit through. But, like, honestly, I was... I Like, Heidi's a really good actor, and that kind mm-hmm. of br- brought 